0: Well, it's great to be here again with you all today. And before we begin our message, let's uh, commit our time to the Lord. Father, thank you for the gift of hope. Thank you for your presence and for welcoming us to worship you and to acknowledge you, to confess you and to spend time sitting before you, feeding on your word. Lord, please fill us with your spirit and grant us understanding and grant us the hope that you've given us that will be true for us as we worship you and live for you. Amen. In our series on uh, the Christian hope, we must now come face to face with the greatest enemy of all. It has been with us, with humanity, almost since the beginning of our existence. It is a thief that robs our hope and the hope for all creation. When its work is done, we we can be left adrift, broken, or even worse. It affects all earthly creation and goes by many names. No matter how optimistic you are as a person, no matter how much stuff you own, no matter how old you are, no matter what kind of distractions you entertain yourself with, This waits for all of us, this enemy. Every version of hope offered in the world must address this horrible, repugnant reality. The greatest enemy of hope is called death. Since the certainty of death is unavoidable, can there really be any true hope for any of us? Is hope just a way to pretend and to ignore the reality of what lies down the road for all of us? Now, I know this is a sensitive topic, and I want to acknowledge that for some of us, this is a painful reminder of current events or a recent loss. You can be assured, we all can, that God knows our grief, our pain, and our fears. Jesus himself was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled by the sadness and pain of those who mourned the death of his friend Lazarus. John simply records that Jesus wept, even though Jesus knew that his plan was to raise Lazarus up from the dead. Yes, death can extinguish hope. But the wonder of God's promise is that death is not the final act of life. If the enemy of hope is death, then the champion of hope is resurrection, life after death. As we have seen these past few weeks, the Christian hope is founded on God's promise of restoration and renewal, as we saw in Romans chapter 8. Hope is presently unfolding like a flower in bloom, as we learned last week in Ephesians 1, that God has chosen us to belong to him. Christ has redeemed us, and the Spirit of God has sealed us and has written on our our very lives that we belong to the Father. As we now stand and, and bask in the present reality of hope, we now must lean forward into that hope as we trust God for the future, as we anticipate what hope will bring as it is unveiled for all creation, that all things will be summed up in Christ to the praise and glory of God the Father. Christian hope anticipates the hope of God fulfilling his promise, of him doing what he says he will do. In our day and in the day of of Paul, the idea of life after death was considered by some to be absurd. Wishful thinking, false hope, foolish. Doubt even arose among some of the early Christians as to whether there was even a resurrection of the dead. In Paul's lengthy letter to the Corinthian church, he addresses this confusion in chapter 15. Paul demonstrates that the Christian hope is based on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In Christ's resurrection, We anticipate our own with eager expectation and longing. We have hope because Christ Jesus is alive to the praise and glory of God and to the praise and glory of God's promise that he fulfills through Christ for us. In our text today, which is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 28, Paul begins by affirming the truth and certainty of the gospel in verses 1 to 11. Then he lays out for us the consequences if there is no resurrection of the dead in verses 12 to 19. And then he finishes in verses 20 to 28 by reinforcing the Christian hope of life after death, along with a glimpse into the future of God's kingdom's rule. Now, Paul begins to address this uh, confusion among some of the Corinthian believers over the resurrection of the dead by reminding them, the brothers and sisters, of the gospel message in which they believed. Paul says, Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In verse 1, Paul begins to review the basic message of the gospel that he brought to them when he was at Corinth. This is the gospel that they received and in which they stand. The idea of to stand is to depend or rely upon with certainty. I stand upon the gospel. I stand upon this podium. No one is going to hold me up. I don't doubt it. This is God's purpose in bringing us to him to give us the conviction of faith. This gospel by which we are being saved is an interesting expression. Paul doesn't say uh, the gospel you received that saved you as in past tense. The idea here is that salvation is not just a past event, but a present reality and a future hope. Since salvation has just begun, we wait for its complete fulfillment. So Paul can write, you are being saved. As in, we're continuing to wait to see the completion of what God has started at Christ's resurrection. Another way that Paul says this, basically, is to say, hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. To persevere in the faith demonstrates the validity and truth of your faith. As it says in Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So Paul begins to unveil and describe for us what is the gospel. And he says it essentially in verses 3 and 4 where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In these verses, Paul is presenting the core or the heart of the gospel, which he himself has received and passed on to the Corinthian believers. These are the bare basics, which he describes in this text about the message of the gospel. You know, given the complexity of the gospel, all that you know about it, what would you say are the essential elements? What is the, the critical most important parts that must be understood in order for it to be the gospel. Well, Paul, in these verses, tells us what they are. The first place that he begins is he says, Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for his own. He died for yours and mine. And this is all done in accordance to the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament. We'd think of uh, texts like Psalm 22, or Isaiah 53, or even as passages in Zechariah that reflect and predict and prophesy what Jesus would do in his death. We also know that Christ was buried, again, according to the scriptures. That he really died, he was physically dead, not just uh, uh, in a sense of, of disappearing. We also know that he wasn't just a disembodied spirit, but he actually really died. And that he, ro- he rose from the grave bodily. Again, all in accordance to what scripture. So this was all part of God's plan, and he announced long before that this was what he was going to do in the fullness of time. The last core element that Paul mentions of the gospel is the witnesses who, physically, who saw Jesus physically, whom they, whom they met, they spoke with, they even ate together with Jesus. Paul goes on to identify a number of these eyewitnesses as we see in this text. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So we can see here that Paul mentions a number of eyewitnesses. He mentions Cephas, who is known as Peter. He mentions the 12, the 12 disciples. He mentions 500 people at the same time all seeing Jesus. A single person or a small group could say they saw Jesus. But a large group, all at once, that's much more difficult to refute. In fact, Paul says some are still alive. So theoretically, the Corinthian believers could actually go and talk to them. Then he mentions James and the apostles. James that he refers to here is the half-brother of Jesus. And we know from John 7.5 that James and the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him, but they did after the resurrection. And finally, Paul mentions himself. He includes himself as least. He was not part of the original group. He even persecuted the church. All before Christ came with grace and save Paul, to make him a witness as well, to add his voice to those of others. So that Paul could say in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul finishes this summary of the gospel by reminding the Christians at Corinth that this is the gospel. This is the message that was delivered to them. Any deviation from this gospel is not the gospel, but something else. With this final thought, Paul turns attention now to address those who had some confusion over the resurrection from the dead in verses 12 to 19. Now you may find this a bit strange. That you can think that how could anybody say they are a Christian and not believe that Christ is resurrected or that there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, we don't have to look very far to see this oddity in our day. In 2017, the BBC conducted a survey in Great Britain. And they asked people who described themselves as Christians what they believed a full one-quarter of people who identified themselves as Christians said they didn't believe in resurrection. Now, I don't think we'd fare any better in Canada, unfortunately. So apparently, there are people who say they follow Jesus, they may even go to church, but they don't think Jesus is alive. Now, as an aside to this, this would mean that just because you meet somebody who says they're a Christian doesn't mean that they are. We really should be asking some gospel questions just to confirm their faith. In Paul's day, and that of the Greek Corinthian believers, resurrection was dismissed as foolish. Do you remember when Paul uh, presented the gospel to the Greek intellectuals in Athens, in Acts 17? What happened when Paul mentioned resurrection from the dead? Well, the party stopped. People began to mock him. Others uh, said more politely, Yeah, we'll talk about this at another time. But a few did believe, were convicted to have faith. But the overall sentiment was, why talk about resurrection of the dead? It's foolishness. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can someone, some of you say that uh, there is no, no resurrection from the dead? So here's what apparently was happening. Some Corinthian believers who doubted resurrection actually did believe that Christ was resurrected. But they were confused as to whether Christians are also resurrected. Greek thought held that the spirit was more important than the body. After all, could you reanimate a corpse? What kind of body would this be? It was all quite confusing. And we can sometimes assume that everyone knows what is meant by the word resurrection. You know, a dictionary definition, a simple dictionary definition, says resurrection is the act or fact of bringing someone back to life or bringing something back into use or existence. Now think about it. Would you say that the resurrection of Lazarus or Jairus' 12-year-old daughter or the widow of Nain's son was the same as the resurrection of Jesus? These three people were restored to life in their pre-death bodies, only to die later on. Jesus rose with a new body and never dies. So these resurrections are different, even though we use the same word. You hopefully can see how some of the Corinthian believers became confused. What do you mean by resurrection? So Paul, like a good rabbi, takes a for the sake of argument position. And then he follows it to see where it leads and drives home implications. This is why you read in this text of verses 12 to 19 a series of if-then statements. So Paul goes on to say, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The logical consequences of a belief in no resurrection, Paul lists quite clearly. If the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. In verses 13 and 16. Our preaching is in vain. The Greek word uh, for vain here means empty. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty, pointless, and worthless. If if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain and futile. Again, the word is empty. Any sacrifice, any suffering that people have gone through for their faith in Christ would be pointless if Christ was not raised from the grave. In verse 15, we become false witnesses. The testimony of all those listed in verse, verses 5 to 9, Peter, the 12, the 500, even Paul, would end up be to be found to be liars, false witnesses because Christ is not alive. And lastly, even more profoundly, in verse 17, we are still in our sins. Without resurrection of Christ, it means that we are, are condemned. There is no forgiveness. And for the believers who have fallen asleep, that is, who have died in Christ, there's no restoration. They've perished. They're lost. They face judgment, as we do, without resurrection. And lastly, Paul puts the hammer down. He says, without resurrection, there is no hope. All we can look toward is our own death. And worse, we are worse off in a poor condition than those who never believed in the first place because we spent our life clinging to a false hope. Now, as to the seriousness of this, uh, Fee adds in this commentary, this comment, to deny Christ's resurrection is tantamount to a denial of Christian experience altogether. We must resist the temptation to edit the gospel, to fit our societies." beliefs, and sensibilities, end quote. Those Corinthian Christians who held the no-resurrection position faced the prospect of no hope. Likewise, in our day, people who think they are Christians yet deny Christ's resurrection not only face no hope, but the greater danger of having believed a different gospel which cannot save them. Remember, remember, that Paul is using these if-then statements to teach and reinforce the essential truth of the gospel. There is a resurrection of the dead. Jesus has risen bodily from the dead. He is resurrected, and because he is, our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is fully true. We are all faithful and true witnesses of God's gospel. We are delivered From our sins. Believers who have died in Christ are not lost, but eternally saved. We are not to be pitied because we indeed do possess the only true and lasting hope. It is to this hope and anticipation of life after death that we now turn to verses 20 to 28, where Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ's the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Paul affirms that Christ is alive according to the Scriptures through which God announced his plans. Christ has risen, and this is confirmed by the many eyewitnesses, some of whom remained alive, who could confirm this, even Paul himself. As we've already mentioned, these few confused Corinthian believers did affirm Christ's resurrection, but they struggled with the physical resurrection of believers. So in verse 20, Paul reminds them that Christ, by his resurrection, has become the first fruit of those who have died. We met this idea a few weeks ago. And by way of reminder, first fruits refers to the Old Testament Israelites who offered before God the first of the harvest as a token and a pledge that all the harvest belonged to God. Paul here is identifying Christ as the first fruit, indicating that the rest of the harvest belongs to him, belongs to God. And who is the harvest? The harvest are those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. They too will be raised to life, the same life that Jesus possesses. So Paul now goes on to explain the connection between Christ's resurrection and ours, using a comparison between Adam and Christ. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made all alive. As you learn from Genesis, spiritual and physical death came to humanity through Adam. And we, by nature, inherited these terrible consequences. Of disobedience and sin. What happened to Adam happens to us. So we all die. Just as death came through one man, life after death or resurrection comes through one man. All those in Christ by faith will inherit the consequences of Christ's obedience, which is forgiveness and new life. Because Christ lives, so do those who belong to him. What happens to Christ happens to those who belong to Jesus. Verbrugge, in her commentary, says Jesus' resurrection was not simply an event that happened to him as a human being, but an event that set in motion the reversal of the curse of God against Adam and against Adam's sons and daughters. The original readers of Paul's letter may have well paused here and thought, okay, but when is this all going to happen, Paul? People have died. Uh, we don't see any resurrection happening. Uh, you just tell us about Jesus' resurrection. So perhaps anticipating this question, Paul says there is an order, there's a sequence to these events. And that's seen in verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. First, Christ is raised to life. Then when Jesus comes again or returns, he will bring with him those who died in the faith. And they too shall be alive just like Christ. Now, someone among the Corinthian believers may have then logically thought to themselves, well, what has happened to those who've already died in Christ? Paul, you know, you, you write to us, you tell us this, but Are they going to come back alive with Christ? But in the meantime, what's happening? Well, here's where we need to take a pause. Because Paul doesn't answer this unasked question. At least not here. Paul mentions and suggests what happens uh, in other passages. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to uh, talk about present heaven. When we refer to heaven, we often mean the place where Christians go and dwell when they die. Theologians call this uh, intermediate or present heaven. Now, present heaven is fully heaven. When believers die, they enter into God's presence. But it is an intermediate place in the sense that it is temporary. It is not our final destination. We will not dwell forever in present heaven because As we've already learned earlier on in our message series, God has a plan and a promise to restore all creation where we will live forever in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth. Therefore, we would expect that the focus of Scripture is centered on the final destination, not on the intermediate destination. God has only provided glimpses into the present heaven, so that we will rightly focus our attention on the final destination and not on the immediate presence of heaven. So to further help to illustrate this, to help you understand this, I want to first give an illustration offered by uh, Randy Elcorn in his book on heaven. And then we'll briefly look at a few scriptures to support uh, the idea of what scripture teaches about a present heaven. And then we'll conclude our message going back to 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. Now hopefully as you grasp these ideas, you should immediately recognize that our Christian hope is based on a promise which is appearing as a present reality even as we anticipate the fulfillment of our hope. A hope that drives away fear, death, and hopelessness. A hope that overcomes all because it rests on Christ's resurrection. Now, I have modified a little bit Alcorn's story, and I want to engage your imagination as you see, as we together see, the difference between intermediate and eternal heaven. Suppose you live in a homeless shelter in Montreal, and one day you're informed that you've inherited a beautiful house in Vancouver, fully furnished on a gorgeous hillside overlooking the ocean. With the home comes a wonderful job doing something you've always wanted to do. Not only that, but you also hear that close family members who've moved from Montreal many years ago will also be there. On your flight to Vancouver, you'll change planes in Toronto where you'll spend an afternoon. And while there, some other family members whom you've not seen for a few years will meet you at the Toronto Airport and board and you'll go together to Vancouver because they've also inherited beautiful homes. Now, naturally, you look forward to seeing them. Now, when the Montreal ticket agent asks you uh, where are you headed, would you say Toronto? No, you'd say Vancouver because that's your final destination. If you mention Toronto at all, you would say, well, I'm going to Vancouver by way of Toronto. When you talk to your friends in Montreal about where you're going to live, would you focus on Toronto? No. You might not even mention the city, even though you'll be in Toronto uh, for a few hours. Even if you left the airport in Toronto and spent a day or a week there, it still wouldn't be your focus. In fact, you can't wait to get to Vancouver. Toronto is just a stop along the way. Your true destination, your new long-term home, is in Vancouver. Similarly, as Elkhorn in his story continues, the heaven we will go to when we die, the intermediate heaven, is a temporary dwelling place. It's wonderful, it's nice, it's much better than the Toronto airport, but it's still just a stop along the way for a final destination, which is the new earth, which is a lot better than Vancouver. it will be great to see friends and family in the present heaven, whom we haven't seen for a while, but like us, they will look forward to the resurrection, after which we together will live in the place that God has prepared for us. This is what the Bible is promising us. We will live with Christ and one another forever, not in the present heaven, but in the new earth, which God will make into heaven by virtue of the location of his throne and his presence, where he will forever be at home with his people. Now this is a nice story, and it highlights why the Bible focuses on our final destination and not on the temporary intermediate heaven. But Scripture does offer some glimpses into this present heaven as we move from death to Christ. For example, in Luke 23, with one of the thieves on the cross, as he was dying, uh, being crucified along with Jesus, he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's present heaven. Or, Stephen, one of the first deacons who was martyred, the first martyr for the faith, as he was dying, being stoned to death. In Acts 7, 55-56, he says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Where is Christ standing in the present heaven? Or Philippians, and 2 Corinthians, where Paul himself says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Or in 2 Corinthians 5.8, where he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There are other passages. We don't have time to go through them all. But I'll mention just a hint from 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18, where Paul addresses this where Paul points out that we do not grieve death like those who have no hope. It's normal for us to grieve people who have passed on. But we have the hope, if they're believers, that we'll see them again and that they're enjoying the presence of God. And so Paul ends the first Thessalonians passage on this section by saying, therefore, encourage each other with these words. We have Assurance of hope that in Christ we live now in this world, then in present heaven. And if Jesus should delay, we will wait for the wondrous future of a new earth and a new heaven, as Paul said in verse 23. But each of us in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, as we anticipate this final fulfillment of hope in resurrection. Paul shares what must yet happen as we conclude with the rest of the portion of 24 to 28. Paul writes, Then comes the end, when he that is Christ delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he does not mean that uh, he is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So then comes the end. Christ delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. This requires that every rule, authority, and power be removed, be subdued, be destroyed, and made subject to God's rule. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Here's where we see the results of Christ's rule, as all enemies are beneath him. Now, the fact is Christ is reigning now. And as Fibrood says, Christ is reigning at the present time despite the presence and power of evil in the world. And in his own time, he will overthrow all the spiritual forces of evil. And now comes great news. At this time, death will be destroyed. It'll be the death of death. The enemy of hope will be destroyed, removed. Just as bright light overcomes and wipes away darkness, so death will vanish forever in Christ. We anticipate that hope and long for that day when death is finally vanquished. Paul continues the last couple of verses where he says, God the Father's role is to place under the Son all things, except, of course, God the Father himself when Christ has completed and finished perfected the kingdom and everything is subject to Jesus then Christ will lift up the kingdom to the Father so that God may be all in all. The idea is that God the Father will administer the kingdom that is brought to perfection through the Son. This too is part of the anticipation of hope shared by all of us who belong to Christ. Our anticipation of hope is at the foot of the cross. As we conclude our time together in God's word today, and as we prepare our hearts to share in the communion table with Jesus, we can be assured that because Christ is raised to life, so will we. In hope, we anticipate life after death all to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words of hope and of joy and of anticipation that you wait for us, that you draw us into this stream of hope that we can look forward to being with you forever and worshiping you today, living before you, knowing that our future is with you Father, if there's anybody who is struggling with hope, struggling with depression right now, uh, I pray that you would fill them, God, with your gift of hope, that your light would shine into their hearts, that they would see the wonder and joy that you hold out to all of us who belong to Christ. In your name, Jesus, we offer our prayers. Amen.